Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. I've got with me screenwriter Peter Spencer from Manchester. Hello, Peter. Hello, Stuart. Yeah, pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, we're uh, we're fresh from us. Fresh is probably an exaggeration. We're uh, we're weary from a recent um, LSF and that's London Screenwriting Festival um, sort of reunion stroke Christmas do. You've come down from Manchester to meet up with a lot of. I guess London-based writers. And what do you think? It was about thirty of us in there. Yeah, it was. It was a very, very good turnout indeed. Brilliant people. Now, um, now the reason the reason <laughs> we've got you on the podcast is that this year, two thousand and thirteen, you got your first feature film made from a script of yours. Is that right? It's actually my second one. Okay. Because there was one called Towns, which came before that. Okay. That was a co-write on. But by and large, this is the one I fully, the first one I fully scripted. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, if you, for the, for the people listening out there, do you want to give a brief description as to what that film is that you've made this year? Sure. It's called The Last British Execution. It's um, a satire. And the idea is that um, a VIP has been assassinated. It's mm-hmm. killed a much-loved, famous person. Been murdered by a, a 20-year-old who wants to be famous. The government are only six or seven weeks away from election. They mm. need something popular to, to win the vote. They can't afford a war. They can't have another Belgrano. <laughs> um, and there's an MP who's discovered a 400-year-old law which states that if you murder somebody of a particular rank, you have to be executed without trial. So they decide to bring back this law for this one-off occasion. <clears throat> Being the government, they then want to privatise it. And it ends up in the hands of an American company that runs prisons, which... There are com- prisons run by American companies in this in, in this country. Okay. The man who runs the the prison is a governor who's um, his time served. He's been there a long time, twenty more than twenty years. He's a bit bored, and he's in a, a bit of a dull marriage. Mm. And his wife suddenly leaves him mm. with tons of debt he had no idea about, mm. and he's about to lose his house. He has a, a confidant, if you like, in the prison, a trustee. Mm-hmm. He was a con man who managed to persuade him that uh, if he sells the TV rights to this prick to this execution, it could be the end of all his money woes, and that's kind of how it okay. becomes a bit of a media circus after that. Now, the the, the interesting thing about this film is is um, is how how it was funded and, and what that meant in terms of how it was made. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're going to have these we're going to be speaking to these guys in a later later episode directly, but just briefly, what's your kind of understanding of what it, the, the funding regime is that your film got made under? Well, it's made by BYFA, which is the British Youth Film Academy. Okay. And it's funded by the Cooperative. The Cooperative is a, an organisation that originated around Manchester mm. about 
30 years ago. Mm. And the idea was ordinary people could band together and be stronger together. So the original cooperative... Um, ordinary... This is the cooperative bank as we know it today. Yeah, yeah. But, but how it originated as a cooperative society. Of course, yeah. Um, when people uh, used to put money into a pot basically mm. every week. Yeah. And eventually they had enough money to open their own shop. They didn't have to pay the high prices from uh, the merchants at the time. They, they could buy in from anywhere. That led to obviously the cooperative sh shops, as you know now. There are yeah. no shareholders in the cooperatives. Yeah. It's all owned by members. Yeah, members. Yeah. yeah. Um, and cooperative bank. They've actually been making films for about 80 years. They've, they've, been, fun they've been funding films for student projects and things for decades and okay. decades and decades. They made lots of educational films. Okay. About four or five years ago, they decided they would try and put something back into the community by... Um, putting together students who are leaving film school, drama mm -hmm. school, people who've just done courses in makeup or uh, editing, yeah, with together with people who already work in the industry, and make a film. And the idea is, you come out of drama school and you've got a credit immediately. Of course, yeah. So you've, yeah. you've got your name on a film as a DOP or the makeup girl or the the costume lady, and they made. They had made four or five films which were okay for what they were. Mm. And then they had a film that was nominated for an award at Rain Dance. And they thought possibly they could... Um, what was that? It was uh, an adaptation of a Shakespearean one. Okay. And most of the things they've been doing were public domain. So reworkings of Shakespeare. So they oh, okay. didn't have to pay anybody for the rights. And then I was approached by um, a director, stroke cameraman called Ian Cash, mm. who's also an actor, and he'd been on tour, I think, with a play, and he'd been in a bar and met the man who runs BYFA. Mm -hmm. Realised they're both from the same town. Yeah. Um, the BYFA gentleman mentioned to Ian the scheme they had running, and Ian said, "Well, I've got a film." And there was actually a story behind me and Ian as well. I yeah, can tell yeah, you that yeah. one. We'll, we'll, we can get that later. Sure. And they, they funded the film. Okay. Um, so they, they paid me for the option. Um, and they made the film over five weeks last year. But, but essentially, it's, 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 a, it's a fund made available where it's a combination of established working filmmakers and drawing on a pool of student talent to make it more affordable. But the trade-off is that investment in the film gives... A new generation of filmmakers of exactly. solid credit. That's exactly a, right. A solid footing. Okay. Well, look, uh, we're going to talk to the people behind that in, in, in the near future, but I thought it was worth just, just talking about that in, in relation to mm -hmm. Peter's film. Now, Peter, rewinding the clock a bit, um, and we, we, we'd really like to bring in an element of education into the podcast and, and just show the varied routes and, and decisions people made into becoming a screenwriter. So, Thinking back, when would you? What would you say is or what or who that got you hooked into the idea of making films? What what represents that kind of tipping point for you? I was originally a novelist. Okay. And I did what everybody else did. I sent novels off to publishers and agents, and got the rejection letters. Mm -hmm. And one day, a friend of mine said, "You should publish a novel yourself." Every year I used to buy a book called the Writers and Artists Yearbook, mm -hmm. which is basically a list of publishers. Yeah. And there were two chapters, one on vanity publishing, i.e. avoid it at all costs, mm. and one on self-publishing, which was a grand tradition, people like Thomas Hardy and Mark Twain, 
who'd done it in the past. Okay. Roddy Doyle had recently published his book, The Commitments, which had been a big hit and become a film. Mm. And I believe John Grisham had self-published The Firm. The Commitments were self-published? Yes. Oh, it, right, it was yeah. originally in a little village, and it kind of just grew and grew and grew. Excellent. And there was also, a, I'm from Manchester, and there was a bit of a scene of um, young upstart publishing houses there. There was one called Ringpull. Mm. You ever hear of Jeff Noon? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was done by Ringpull. Okay, okay. A little independent guy. The guy was actually a manager at uh, Waterstones. Was he really? I knew him who, who created that, that publishing house. And so what I did, I, this chapter in the Writers and Artists Yearbook said, if you want to self-publish, go and find this book. So I went to Waterstones and the book was there on the shelf. So I bought it. Mm. And I learned what I needed to do, get the ISBN, etc. And one thing it did say was, um, make, make sure the cover is the best you can afford. Okay. So I went to, uh, to Waterstones again and found a book I loved. <coughs> yeah. And I rang the publisher in London and said, can you tell me who made this cover? I want to hire him. Mm. And they said, yes, his name is X. He's probably no good to you because he lives in Manchester. He lives <laughs> about a six-minute walk from my house. No way. That's fantastic. That's an amazing. They gave me his phone number. I walked around to see him. And we struck up a relationship, and he did me a, a, a fantastic cover. Mm. Um, and what was the title of that he was in the cover the, the book was called Prism, P-R-I-S-M. Yeah. It was a kind of post-IRA novel. Yeah. It's interesting, because the idea was that the British had their own, their own um, fake terrorist unit, mm. which was committing crimes to... Frame the IRA. Sounds familiar in this day, in this <laughs> does, day, yeah. this news agenda, current news agenda. And it, to be fair, it had gone out <clears> to agents, it had gone out to publishers, and a lot of them said, we like it, but there, there are too many IRA booked in the market anyway. That yeah. was the kind of reaction I, I had. So he made me this cover, and I had 100 covers made, and I sent six covers to WH Smiths, and there was no internet. I had to ring WH Smiths, find out where the office was, find the name of the, the buyer, and, and so on. And I sent them six covers, and I'd even had a special phone line installed in my house. Really? For the orders, you know? A back phone. <laughs> so it was a fax machine, stroke answering machine, stroke phone. But as it happens, the day they rang, I was in the house. And this woman said, I'm from the Witch Smith, I'm the buyer. We love your cover. Um, we'd like to order some books. And I said, well, that's fantastic. And she said, well, how many would you like us to order? I said, okay, how about 500? And she went, oh, no, we can do better than that. We'll take 2,000 copies. <laughs> so I already had an order for 2,000 copies before I even printed the book, basically. Well, yeah. Eventually sold about 2,800 copies because I sold it all over the place. Well done. Um, it, <laughs> it was in um, the shops about 10 days mm. when I got a call from a, a production company who make films in America. And they had an office in London saying we'd like to come down and talk about the film rights for this. Okay. So I came to London and because I thought it was so far-fetched, no one would believe me, I brought a friend of mine with me. And um, here's a strange story. The day before I went, yeah. I thought I'd better get an agent. Right. So I got the, the before mentioned yearbook and I uh, plucked an agent out of there, around the agent who said, don't sign anything, have a talk with them, ring me, I'll take care of it all. <laughs> well, I did. So when we were, I was meeting these two guys and they knew the book intimately. Right. Okay. One of them had just um, exec produced a film that had done really well in Cannes mm-hmm. that year. And the other um, had a, a very big TV reality show, which was about to... The so break. let's get right at this moment. You're not, you're not trying to get into film at this point. You've written a book that's attracted the attention. And self-published it, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, cool. 
but of course it, it didn't it didn't look like a self-published book the cover mm. was a professional and i <coughs> created an imprint if you like a company name yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for the book and they talked about how they wanted to do the book and um did i want to write the screenplay and i said i have no idea how to write screenplay they said that's a relief we'd like to do it ourselves anyway i said call my agent like you do and I did, and I spoke to the agent a few days later, and he said, oh, it didn't go through, and we couldn't agree on the money, and kind of it just died. Oh, really? That agent story will come back later on. Okay. 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 I then took the money from the first book, and self-published a second book, mm -hmm. about one of my sort of lifetime ambitions, which is the JFK assassination. Okay. That book lost all the money I made on the first book. Really? And I had like a marriage breakup, and I ended up as a single father, and... I was I didn't write anything for three or four years, and I was um, working in a shop selling a fax machine. So this couple who came in on a Friday night, it was a summer's night, it was quiet, we were chatting away, and the chap said to me, I can't believe I'm only here for two days, but I need a fax machine for my work. And I said, what do you do? And he said, I'm in film production. So I said, are you famous? He said, no, but my partner is, and he named this chap who'd made a really big film. And... Um, I said, are you looking for material? And he said, we're always looking for material. So he gave me the office address. I sent them my books and they mm. took, took the second book. Yeah. Anyway, this, this, this chap, Chris, kept in touch with me. Uh, at one point I was very ill and he rang me every day in hospital, which was fantastic of him. Mm. Really amazing. And he got me writing treatments. And at one point he said, um, he said, you should write a screenplay. You write very visually. And so I went back to Watson's. I found a book by Sid Field. Really? And I had, a, I had a novel I'd not published, and I just put the whole novel into index cards mm. and um, started from there, really, and, and just kept on going. Then in 1998 or 99, Channel 4 ran a contest to write a 30-minute thing, and I, I sent in for that, and I wrote a script called Cause Effect, and then... I did some travelling in Australia, and I thought, there's a story out here in the outback. Mm. I went right across Western Australia. And I came back and wrote a script in six weeks. Basically, a kidnapping story in the mm. outback in Australia. So, that, so in, in a sense, though, because when, when I spoke to people before, yeah. the answer to that question is usually a film they've written, or, I'm sorry, a film they've watched, or a movie star they yeah, thought yeah. was fantastic, or whatever. Um, but in, the, your, your kind of, your in, as it were, was was through the fact that you were writing mm -hmm. and the fact you produced some stuff, but in a position to be able to talk about things that could be made into scripts. So in the first instance, somebody being attracted by your book and then somebody you just talking to and you bridge the subject of, do you do do you take submissions or whatever? And yeah, it's do, you need, like, do you need material? Yeah, yeah do you need material? Yeah. So in that sense, but the important thing was, and... Uh, dear listener, we were, we were talking about this before we started recording, but the important thing from a writing point of view is that you were writing this stuff anyway. Yes. You weren't waiting to be asked that's to write stuff, and that's an important point, I think, for writers, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you don't need permission off anybody, do you? Yeah. In fact, yeah. it's, the, it's yeah. almost like the cheapest art form and the cheapest and, and the cheapest way to enter the film industry that's because yeah, yeah. you don't need thousands of pounds of camera equipment or lighting. Exactly. You need a couple hundred quid in a laptop. And you're off. Oh, I know. It's a tight. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. I was going to say you were. That, that I'm talking about now. When you were. Just... <clears throat> so let's talk about how you write a script then. Okay. How did you find the what? What was your immediate kind of 
because I, I, I spoke to Dougie Brimson, who's done football yep. hooligan books and yes. Green Street and various other kind of kind of football related uh, films. Okay. Now he made that transition from a novel to a script. Yes, and, and you and you, you described before you got a book and index card it out. How did you find that? And and the fact that the guy you met has said you write very visually, so it's mm-hmm. that kind of you you maybe were stylistically halfway home in some senses. Um, but how did you find that transition from being a novel writer to being a screenwriter? Uh, very easy. Right. I mean, there are the obvious things, um, overwriting, over-describing, too much dialogue. But little by little, if you do enough millions, write the words in millions of words enough times, yeah. you learn to throw stuff away. Yeah. And I found it quite easy to, to, to structure things. Okay. Um, there was a review of one of my books, and it said... I hate but I kind of feel it's right. He said, this guy knows instinctively how to plot. Okay. And I think I do on some level know how to plot just in my head somewhere, you know? And you, and, and you think that's a kind of, that's an important element of script writing is the yes. idea of, I guess, because you, you're talking, when you're talking about plot, you're talking about emotional beats, aren't you? Where... Yeah, and I also tend to automatically do setups and payoffs. Yeah. So I try not to have any loose ends. So I'll, I'll try and plot something earlier on that you forget about, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. And then later on, when it reoccurs, you make sense to you. Yeah. I think with a film, it should arrive at an, <clears throat> an ending you can't see coming, but when it arrives, it should appear inevitable. Yeah. So you think that's how that's how it should be. Yeah. You've surprised the audience, but yet you've made them feel happy exactly. that they were in on that idea that that's what could possibly happen. Exactly. Yeah. Um. So when you're writing, so let's take the film we're talking about. Execution. execution. Yeah. How does that? How did that start? As an when that idea, you know, you talked about it was a satire and everything. So yeah. let's talk about the germ of that idea and how that grew to be a script. What, what when you've got that idea of where? How did that idea start? Well, I met Ian Cash in two thousand and four. Okay, I had a, a, <coughs> a script called "Sex and Drugs on Northern Soul." Okay, about five lads on a night out at Wigan Casino. Right, and he came from Wigan. He saw the pitch on shooting people. Got in touch. Mm-hmm. And we met up and um, we got on fine, really. And one night walking to the pub, he said to me, I've always wanted to make a film called The Last British Execution. Really? So I said to him, well, these days, you probably have to kill someone pretty important for it to happen and they'd probably privatise it because I've got a relative that works in prisons. Yeah, and yeah. So I kind of, I knew her angle on it. Yeah, yeah. And we just discussed the idea and I said, it would probably end up on Sky or something like that. And I... I I started to write it, but I didn't, didn't know what to write. And then I saw the thick of it in 2005, and I thought, oh, it needs to be a satire. Okay. It can get madder and madder in what it's offering, but it'll, there'll be a logic to it. Mm. And once I knew it was going to be a satire, I um, I was away, really was. What was the process? Though? I mean, how much of the process of building the idea was you talking to the director and developing the idea that way? And how much uh, was you going off in a darkened room with the, the laptop screen in your face? He sent me one. He sent people. me one page of things... He had in mind. Yeah. In reality, those things aren't in the film because I right. just went away and wrote it. it took okay. me about a year. Um, and what's your process for writing it? Are you are you a kind of bang it out from the start? Are you are you outlining it? You mentioned index cards before. Historically, I did everything organically. Okay. So I might sign might start five pages in because uh-huh. I don't often know how to do the beginning. So I often start at a scene where the characters are already doing something. Okay. As if I've already met them. Right. And I just assume that I know who they are. So okay. I might start in a pub. Yeah, yeah. And that pub might be on page 10 when you get to the, the, the final version. Okay, okay. So I wrote it organically, and I, I just kept going off on odd tangents, really. So I have a scene where somebody's watching it, 
I'd give them knitting needles because it's a hanging they used to have these are knit by the executions years ago mm. you know th those little touches okay and I, um, I like the idea of planting it in a historical context so uh, I came up with the MP who had been banging on for years about capital punishment because of this old law he'd found from 400 years ago yeah I just grew and grew from there really I didn't give any thought to the actual structure I was writing it I just poured it out and then organized it slightly did you know your ending, or did you did you um, did you determine the ending through that organic in, process? In that case, the ending came through the process. Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. What would you can you can you remember a kind of revelatory moment when you're writing that that, that came through that that was that was a solid thing that ended up being something the story was built around. That yeah, came. when I didn't know where it was going, then I'd go for long walks, and I would. I mean, when I got the ending for execution, which is spoiler alert, mm. is where the the executioner dies on the way up to the to the gallows because yeah. he's basically ninety years old. Yeah, he's the original executioner from from the old days, and there's an uproar because it's on TV. You know, it's going out live. Yeah. So the governor decides to, to pull the handle himself to solve his money problems because that means he's not licensed. So he then gets charged with attempted murder with murder because yeah. <laughs> because the man survives the hanging. And it kind of, yeah, that yeah. that was a big flash in the pan moment for me because it ties everything up. And it kind of falls in with the mad logic of that sort of. That sort and that of came to you on a, on a walk on away. On a flash, yeah, no, yeah. Which I think, I mean, that's a kind of Stephen King approach to writing, isn't it? Go for long walks. I always go for long walks. And I think um, yeah. Scott Frank on his BAFTA lecture talks about yeah. he can go. For, I think he says he can go for a ten-minute walk or a ten-hour walk, but he'll yeah. go until he'll keep walking until he has that thought. And I live within reach of the Mersey River, so I'll ride along the bank, and it's okay because. I can't get hit by a car if I'm thinking on the yeah. bike on the river. But what, bank, what do you so. think? What do you think is what do you think's happening there? Because obviously, logic would say you write a script with a keyboard in front of you. And you're right away. What is it that's happening that's not happening when you sat at your keyboard? Do you think? Well, because you're looking. For, I think the keyboard's a mechanical method of how you lay it out. Yeah. But you've got to come up with the, the flash, the idea, mm. the resolution. I just think about how mad can it be? How but still remain logical? Yeah. And it just seems a great little twist. I mean, I mean, I, don't, I, I, I mean, some, I think sometimes when you sat at the keyboard, it can be, it can almost be like oppressive because the keyboard's like expecting something to happen, exactly. And then obviously it dawns on you that it only happens if you do it, and exactly. If, and if it ain't coming, it ain't coming, is it? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the the idea of getting out there and letting it letting it brew, yeah, yeah. and even if it's just a brew to go, right, okay. Yeah. I need to think of something else. Do you do you then if you if you're stuck on some point of a story? Do you, do, you, do you just move on and leave it there, put a, put a marker down? Yeah, say, sometimes I'll just carry on with the rest of the script and I'll make a, uh, I'll put hashtags out of the side of the piece I want to find yeah. again. I need to put something here or this scene needs to end on a button or... Are you, do, you, know. do you write every day? Depends on how I'm feeling. Sometimes if I'm ahead of it, I'll take some time off, you know. Okay. Um, if I get a deadline, I'll write every day. Yeah. But a lot of the time you're not on a deadline, you're writing a spec script. So it's, um, it's and are you, are you like burn the midnight oil or are you up in the up, 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 all, up with the lark? What do you prefer then at the moment? How do you like? To... I used to like overnight writing. Really, I really, oh, cool. I really used to like that. Then I went through a phase where I'd get up at four in the morning and write, and sometimes I'd have a day job and I'd go write in the morning and, and go before work. There's no fixed time for me really. Okay. I quite like writing on a Sunday. I write all day Sunday. Really, I do quite that. It's almost like a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> 
And is that, I mean, that's interesting. Going back to what we were saying before about um, about having to have written something to uh, to get it to give it to somebody to then be noticed for your writing. Mm-hmm. Um, is 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 writing always a pleasure for you, or is no, the it's murder? Really? Of course it is. Yeah. The rewriting is the best. I like rewriting. And why is that? Because that's when you're fixing it, you're polishing it, you're finding what you're moving things around. I mean, very often you'll find I'll grab something that's on page sixty. I just pull it to page twenty-eight. Yeah. To see what it does to the story. You okay. Know? You always put it back because every yeah. dr- every draft is dated. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. You always go back a day. You don't lose it. And and is that is that that is that very different? Is that a different kind of way of writing compared to say if you were doing a novel? No, no, yeah, no, no limits on novel, are yeah. you can, you can... Is that, I mean, and it's not because scripts are formulaic. It's just that scripts are limited, aren't they, in length? You, if if if. For the for the for the reader, I mean, get them in the script world. I'm guessing if you go over 120 pages, then people will frown as to say, "Who the hell do you think you are?" Well, my Australian script, yeah, the Outback Thriller, was 183 pages when I finished. Just 183. It. Yeah, and I, I wrote it in six weeks, and I yeah. knew it was too long. Yeah, and I I came back to it after about four or five months, and there was too much of me in there for a start. Really? So I just pulled me out of it. You know, I think I was working through some. Some personal issues in that of that, that yeah, script. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I pulled all those out. I had a really lean script, about 119 pages. Not, not lean by today's standards. And um, and that's what got me... Um, now, when was when was execution shot, the film? Shot in 2012, in okay. the summer. And what was your, as, as a writer, what was your involvement in the shoot? I went there for one day. Yeah. And just um, um, was on set. Mm. And I spent a few hours with the students. Mm. A lot of them were writing, and they yeah. wanted to sort of talk about writing process and okay. what do I do with this script here, and yeah, how, do I, yeah. how do I get an agent, and yeah, yeah, yeah. the same thing everybody else. Did you wave your magic wand over them then and say, you are now going to get one? Yeah, I, <laughs> I said, you know, move this to this point here, you know, get rid of this opening, you know, just stuck my aura in like a... But they wanted me to go there and talk to the people who were yeah. the, the writers who'd come on to get some film experience. Which is what, that's the, that's the good part about the yeah, way yeah. these films are made, isn't yeah, yeah. it? Um, is there um, is there any projects that you you're at liberty to talk about that you can make? You, I mean, you don't have to. Is there anything you can talk about that you have got in the pipeline at the moment? Well, they're making another one of mine. Okay, go on. Uh, that's shooting next summer, and that's an adaptation of existing play. Okay. As of today, they still haven't quite got the playwright um, to sign the deal, so I won't yeah. say what it is today. But it, I've had a call saying it is going ahead. So. Yeah. And I'll shoot for five weeks next summer. So when we speak to them, we'll, we'll get we'll get the full we'll yeah. get the titles of it of them yeah, what, yeah. what they've got in the process. That's a really it's a really exciting um, scheme. That, I mean, it's funny to think that they're well, not funny, haha. But just it's it's interesting to note that they've been doing this for decades, mm. and actually somebody is in a kind of corporate and social responsible way. It's going, Do you know what we could we could really make a splash here, and it's not necessarily about filling up the View Cinema or whatever. It's more about an organisation putting something back into the, into the community, isn't it? And the great thing is, well, they made a film about the formation of the cooperative last year and they showed it on Film 4. It's called okay. The Rochdale Pioneers. Okay. And and that tells you how the cooperative began, which is mm. quite a fantastic story. People uniting together, a bit like yeah. a union in a way. Oh, yeah, 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 the cooperative movement is... And, and they've always had an ethic of putting something back into the community. That's always mm. been the way. Yeah. Um, and the good thing is... They, had, they made five films last summer. Yeah. You know, that's five films funded. Yeah. And they, they went to Printworks in Manchester. They hired five screens. Mm-hmm. All the casts and crew came. So there were hundreds of people there. Yeah. All arrived dressed for a premiere. 
we all watched our films and then pretty much everybody went out for a, a good night out. Nice one. And so there's still there's still no plans, there's still no release dates or anything, is there not to do the execution? That's off, to, off to festivals, I mean, that's not really in my hands. I yeah. think once you, you sign the script of away, course, that, that's course, it really. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, on uh, on Britflix, we, we like to have a bit of fun with the questions. Now, given your, your, your film is a satire, yeah. um, could you recommend a British satire that you think is maybe underrated and doesn't get enough kudos? In the loop. In the loop? You think that doesn't get enough kudos? No, not really. I mean, it's, it's watched by people who like the thick of it. Right. But it's not in. It's not a big money maker like the in between is, is it? No, I suppose not. No. It's a film that costs very little and probably didn't gross a huge amount, but it's a fantastic film. What do you what do you, what do you particularly like about In the Loop? What do you think works as a satire? Well, it's the, you take a simple idea and you see just how what would happen is you extrapolate it. You know. Yeah. Do you ever see Idiocracy? No. Idiocracy is like an American idea. Do you ever see Office Space? Yes. You might judge who made Office Space and uh, did he make a cartoon? He made Beavis and Beavis Butthead. That's great, yeah. Idiocracy is if you look at today's sort of chav society, yeah. if you extrapolate it, and they, they basically work out that in 500 years from now, everybody will be basically a thumb in the mouth. They'll get so fat and lazy and watching TV. Uh, <laughs> Playing with the video games yeah. and phones. And it, it just, it just yeah, it becomes yeah. a nation of fat idiots. Yeah. And there's a soldier and a, and a hooker who are accidentally put in suspended animation yeah. and they wake up 500 years later and they're the smartest people on the planet. Mm. And it's just very, very funny. Idiocracy. That is a satire. Really good. Like the sound of that one. Yeah. Um, now, this isn't, this isn't to suggest that whatever you give me as an answer should be redone, but if there was a film that you could be, you could take on the responsibility of being the screenwriter for and do it for 2013... What, fi- what film, or, or even what film, I mean, it's a kind of like a roundabout way of saying what, maybe what's your favourite script, script rather than film. What mm. screenplay would you like to have had the byline on in terms of ones you've read in your kind of development? My favourite films I would not want to see remade at all, but I'd love to do something like Towering Inferno again. Okay. Because it really sags in the middle. You know? <laughs> that whole scene where he's, Paul Newman's getting the kids up and down the staircase. Mm. That's a great film that should be remade well the, funny enough the commentary track on Die Hard yeah. they refer to how basically they the, the, the storytelling got refined to such a degree that, that Die Hard beco- can become a classic film mm-hmm. whereas Karen Furno has, has problems as a as yeah. an overall piece of work it's, it's a popular film but as a technically as a piece of art it has, it has problems that Die Hard doesn't it just grinds to a halt in the middle because I guess maybe they had to give both stars they have the same amount of screen time or something. I imagine that. Of course, McQueen's <clears throat> going the explosions and the helicopters, and yeah. he's getting all the glamorous work in there. But as an idea, it's fantastic. Now, yeah. for the for the listener out there who, who's who's a, who's a writer, what would you what what one lesson have you sort of what lesson have you learned either through your own work or from others that as, as still stands you in good stead today, or something you you fall back on into at any time in your kind of writing. Um, what? Any piece of dialogue, you can nearly always take out the middle sentence. Really? Yeah. What would you what? Um... Look at say until you've written, you generally find there's a paragraph. Yeah. You probably find the first sentence is relevant than the second, the third sentence, but the middle one's usually a bit of padding. Okay. Surprisingly, often you can throw away that middle sentence, and it actually makes it better. And don't be afraid to get feedback. 
don't take it personally, don't get angry, just accept what you want to get from it and reject the rest. Um, and just understand that you'll take a while to get better, you know. Is that is that because there's always gonna be a kind of nugget of idea and you're you're not writing a script, I mean it might have talked from my own experience as well, but you know, there's there's ideas out there that you can use that your original work will generate. Mm -hmm. You can be talking to someone or they could have read your work when you're getting feedback. Now, admittedly, that person giving you feedback could imagine a whole different film compared to the one you've written, mm -hmm. which is fine, but you don't don't take that it's about not taking that personally, but also be open to the fact that they might see an opportunity in the feedback, which is make make I guess makes feedback an important part. You're exactly right. I mean execution, I never had a funny ending to it. Right. Mine had either a bleak ending or a cheesy ending. I had different endings. Okay. But the director actually came up with a funny ending. So the final scene is actually, it ends on a laugh, which I never had. Right. So he obviously found a way to end it on a gag, which I missed, you know? Yeah. And into that. it's a better ending than mine, really. Okay. And I think I told you yesterday, you and your, you and your wife yesterday about my airline thriller. Yeah. I told you the ending. It's 70s apocalyptic. Mm. That was a friend of mine saying, I prefer that ending. I said, that's a great ending. I'm stealing that. <laughs> so don't don't be afraid, I'd say. That's also then that's the level of observation, isn't it? As yeah, a writer, you're yeah. you're almost you're almost you're almost got to be instinctively A nosy and be inquisitive. Mm. Because there's stories everywhere, isn't there? And that's kind of what you're living and breathing, isn't it? There are people out there who can see a good idea but they can't admit that it wasn't theirs. Mm. Um I was in London for one day and I had three meetings about the Australian thriller. Yeah. And I was sat at this bar in Soho all day long as the meetings yeah. came along. And one of them asked me, what else have you got? And I said, I've got this Wigan Northern Soul film. And he said, oh, like, they like Sex and Drugs and Northern Soul. And I just said, I'm stealing that. <laughs> that was what he said. I didn't think it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I called it Casino after Wigan Casino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, just said, I'm having that, definitely. I'm quite open, I'll say, I'm having that, you know. But I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. Yeah. I, I don't think, I think anyone that claims their idea was formed in a vacuum yeah, yeah. is a good liar. I don't think anything's original. I mean, I've got Captain Christmas sort of nudging forward now. And when I originally pitched it, it took place over six months. Mm. And somebody says to me, it's got to end on Christmas Day. What's the matter with you? Mm. And it, it actually has, hasn't it? A Christmas film. It's got to end on Christmas Day. I had it going into Easter when I originally wrote it. And Captain Christmas is a, is a special script you write. It is, yeah. It's, okay. it's finished now. It's um, I've got a meeting on it and it's, it's edging forward. And you're in the process of rewriting that and yeah, taking yeah. feedback on it and the like. Yeah, yeah. Okay then, Peter. Well, look, thank you very much for joining us on BritFlix.com podcast. It's my pleasure. Excellent. It's the BritFlix.com podcast. Links.com podcast. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.